0: Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, Anchor. It is so good to see you guys. If we haven't met yet, my name is John. Uh, I'm the executive pastor here at Anchor. Uh, And if you guys don't know this, Anchor is one church that's gathering in a few different locations all together. Uh, We have you guys hanging out here. We have our friends on our live stream. I pointed to the camera if you don't know why I'm waving. Um, And then we have people gathering at Anchor right now uh, over on the east side in the Lincoln District. and we get to share something fun today. Um, so something really fun is happening today. Brian is not here. Uh, stay with me for a while. That's fun. Um, uh, Brian, uh Halfrey is our lead pastor, is actually hanging out for this morning uh, over at a church called Brook Lake up in Federal Way. Uh, and he is hanging out there because Brook Lake today is doing a celebratory moment that they are It's so cool. It's a celebration for them uh, because they are sending out a staff member uh, from there named Mason Florence uh, who's going to plant another anchor next year, which is really, really fun. I'm super excited. Uh, In a couple weeks, you guys are going to get to meet Mason. His wife, Cambria, are going to be brought up on stage on October 30th. We'll have more info about kind of where we're feeling. God is asking us in the greater Tacoma region to plant another Harbor-based church that's called Anchor. Uh, And so we are so excited for that. So mark in your calendars, October 30th, uh, we're introducing that plant. Mason's going to start in January as kind of a church planner in residence, uh, which is right. But October 30th, we're going to announce that. October 30th, Lincoln friends are going to be here. Uh, We're having Eugene Cho come and preach on the 30th, which is really fun. Uh, So you're not going to want to miss that Sunday. Uh, If you're out of town, we do have a live stream. Uh, So all those things are available. It's going to be a super fun Sunday. Uh, But we are in week two of the Kingdom Catechism series. Uh, Like Katie mentioned, if you didn't get a book and you want one, uh, go out to the lobby afterwards, uh, scan the QR thingy, and then if you buy one, it's basically a pre-order, so we know how many books to to order uh, to have it come out this way. Uh, We're really excited about that. We think that, and we know from, from reports we've had from people from doing this in our own lives, in our own small groups, in our own kind of devotional moments, that we are having some really cool conversations come out of this Kingdom Catechism series and book that we've been working on. I, I love the way that we set it up. I think that discipleship happens best not when it's a list of boxes that we check or a list of facts to memorize, but when we engage and wrestle with really relevant questions asking, what does God have to say to me right now today in 2022? And that's our heart behind this that we would wrestle with it. And as we wrestle with these tough life questions that we would grow closer to God as a result of it. Does that make sense? Now, if you were listening closely last week, uh, Pastor Brian said this, he said, hey, we're talking about how we're made in the image of God this week, and you might be wondering how this whole being made in the image of God thing works with us also being broken people because of sin. Well, we're going to talk about that next week. This is that week. This is the week where we dive into the pretty weighty topic of sin and brokenness. A basic aspect of our belief is what we believe is this, and we'll dive into is we believe that every single one of us is broken or as we put on the wall out front, imperfect, right? Like we, we know that. You can't interact with a, a sibling or a spouse, let alone a stranger, and not believe that we are all broken, right? Like it, it just comes to the surface at some point. And so this week, we're diving really heavily into it. What's interesting is if, you, if you're familiar with the catechism, maybe you're an anchor group leader, or maybe you just want to look ahead, you'll know that next week is when we talk about Jesus. We did this intentionally, even though it's going to feel a little weighty. We're talking about sin and brokenness without touching too much on Jesus. We're going to talk about why that is, but that's where we're going this week. And so if you're taking notes, the first thing that I want you to write down is this, is that sin affects everything. Sin affects everything right? Me, you, our world, people, animals, plants, the environments, everything in our world is affected by sin. But how did we get there, right? So last week, Brian talked about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 at the beginning of our Bible and how we were made in the image of God. We were placed in the garden. It was good. People was good. Everything was fine, right? And so something happened. So the same humans that were placed in the garden, Adam and Eve, right? When they were wandering through the garden one day, they encountered another figure in the garden. And it's a figure in the garden that they encountered that we know through many names throughout history, right? A serpent, a snake, Satan, the devil, the, the tempter, whatever, right? And so many names throughout history for this figure, this evil figure, really. And he starts a conversation with Eve. He starts a conversation with Eve where he says this, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden. And if we we paid attention last week or we read the Bible, we know God didn't say you can't eat from any tree in the garden. That's a lie. But it's interesting the way he does it, right? He starts with, did God really say this? He's lying about what scripture says, but asking it in a question way. We do that sometimes, don't we? And Eve says, no, no, no. He just said we couldn't eat from this one tree or we will surely die. And the serpent then says a lie, an out and out lie this time. Ah, you're not going to die. You're just going to be like God, and he's jealous and doesn't want that. So so that's why he doesn't want you to. So Eve takes this fruit from the tree, eats it, gives some to Adam, who is standing there quietly the whole time, and just a shocking show of lack of responsibility. Um, And he takes the fruit as well. And that moment, they realize what they've done. There's a moment that they have right here in Genesis three that all of us can relate to because all of us have had a moment like this, where there was something placed in front of us or something we wanted to do or something that we felt looked appealing and we knew we shouldn't do it, but we did it anyways. And it felt great in the moment. And then afterwards the shame hits. what did I just do? This is the first act of sin. Uh, sin is a, is a, is an interesting word. It can have a lot of baggage. It can have a lot of weight and something we need to take seriously. Uh, but it's also been used in some really bad contexts. Um, I used to, to do like kids ministry. And so when I would teach kids what sin is according to God, I would do hand motions. Um, and then I would do sin is anything that we think that we say or that we do that makes God sad or unhappy. Um, right. That's profound. I heard someone go, Ooh, that's great. Um, it works for me still too, right? So like kids in the room, that's free. Parents, that's also free. Um, but that's, that's the easiest way that I can define sin for like us as people. And so then God shows up and we have the fallout, the, the punishment, the, like I tell my children, the bad choices bring bad results, right? We see this in this moment. And so up to this point, I've kind of paraphrased parts of Genesis 3. You can go back and read it and see if I was right. Uh, But I want us to actually read this text together. We're going to put it up on the screen, starting in verse 14. God has kind of three speeches that he gives to, to the serpent, to Eve, and to Adam about kind of the fallout of this brokenness. So in verse 14, he's talking to the serpent or Satan first, and he says this, "'Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals.'" You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, or hatred, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Like, underline that. Underline that he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is a promise of Jesus, the Messiah. We're going to talk about that next week, but that's a promise. There's a a punishment or a curse, but there's a promise in there as well. Uh, And then we get to the not fun stuff for us humans. He's talking to the woman. He says this, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. I do like that God in this moment looks at Adam and goes like, you were here first. You knew all the rules. What are you doing, man? And then he curses Adam. He says this, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. The, the things, the day-to-day things, or the less day-to-day things, like childbirth being imagin- unimaginably painful, um, that just re- we wrestle with, that we hate, that we run up against, like it comes from this moment. It comes from this decision. Like that garden that you have to keep weeding again and again, it comes from this moment. It comes from this decision. Um, That work is hard. That childbearing is hard. Like all this stuff comes out of this decision, right? Because sin has now entered the world and there is no turning back. I think it's really easy to fixate on this one moment and go like, "What what if I was there and I had the right willpower to not do what Adam and Eve did there? Like, I've, I've had this moment, maybe I'm just like weirdly arrogant, but like I had this moment where I was like, no, I would tell her no. I, I don't think I would have. <laughs> uh, my wife, Rose, and I used to work with teenagers a lot, and I remember one summer we took a group of about 10 or 12 high school students uh, to Zambia down in the southern part of Africa to help out some children's pastors down there. They said, hey, can you come help us kickstart our kids ministry this year? We're like, sure, Totally. Um, I remember we're down in Zambia and we're staying in this house and this house has a great yard. It's got some trees in it and it has a wall around it with like broken glass on top of it. Cause that's just what they did down there uh, for safety, security, all those things. And, and the hosts of this house told us this. They said, Hey, teenagers, they can walk in the house, out of the house, all around the yard, whatever they want. Just do this. Don't like tell them not to go near the wall. Because in the wall were these like cutouts for airflow and air circulation and all these types of things. Um, but they would be really cool during the heat of the day. And, and so we're like, oh, okay, why? And they said, well, sometimes snakes hang out in those holes. And like sometimes the snakes are chill, but sometimes they're poisonous. I was like, cool, so in case they're poison, well, don't, not to, right, don't do it. I remember one after, and so we told the kids this rule. We told the teenagers this rule. Like, hey, one rule, okay? If we're sounding familiar, we're there. Um... And so I'm sitting in the living room with these children's pastors and talking with them. And I hear my wife Rose outside on the front porch. and She's like, no, stop. And if you've raised teenagers, your voice starts to elevate. Hey, stop. And it keeps going. So I go outside and I see three of my favorite teenagers in the world just standing right by the wall. I was like, get over here. I was like, what were you doing? They're like, we were by the wall. I was like, you know, that was the one thing we told you not to do, right? They're like, yeah, we want to get a picture of a snake. I was like, cool. So like the theological construct that like we all would have made the same decision is that like you have borne that out. Like, thank you. We had one rule, you broke it. Um, But like that's how, and so sin has entered the world. And, And it affects people and we're gonna talk about that, but it also affects our world, right? Like why is there droughts? Why is there famine? Why is there natural disasters? Why are there hurricanes? Why is there cancer? Why do things poison other things? Why do things die? We live in a broken world. And that's hard and that's overwhelming at times, but sometimes it's weirdly comforting for me because you can't spend a day walking around in this world without going like something feels broken. And so there's aspects of when hard things happen, when you get hard news from a friend about something in their bodies over the weekend and you're like, why does it? We live in a broken world, that's the why. And there's something reassuring about going like, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And even just that knowledge, I think I find reassuring at times. But remember, right? Like the world is broken and people are broken. That, that sin decision that Adam and Eve made has been passed down, inherited from person to person to person to person and it affects all of us, right? And all of us are broken and in need of grace. There's a quote that says this, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Great harm and great beauty are possible in every single human and I do mean every single human. I talked a couple of weeks ago about how we have this tendency to, to other people where we say, well, not, not, not like them or like those people. I just, if you find yourself saying those people, that's a heart check moment. Like it's a moment where you're saying like, do I actually think that those people who I just called those people are made in the image of God? Anne Lamott has a quote that just like floored me the first time I read it, she says this, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> I thought God hated people, like I really have. They were the same people I hated. And it's so hard that no matter, whether, whether you can rationalize it or right or wrong, we're like, they have made reprehensible choice after reprehensible choice after reprehensible choice. It's like, they're still made in the image of God and he still loves them. Shane Claiborne had a quote a, few, a while ago where he said this, he goes, if we think that terrorists are beyond redemption, we need to tear out half our New Testament because it was written by one. That's Paul, right? Like we, we, this is the complexity of sin. This is the complexity of brokenness. This is what it means where we go, but, but they're bad and God's like, they're still made in my image. And that's hard, isn't it? It's really hard for us to understand I think the best way for me to understand it is I I look to to a figure like Paul who says, "I'm, I'm chief among the sinners. And I look and I go, I know my own brokenness. I know my own brokenness better than I know anyone else's brokenness. Maybe we start there. That sin affects me so much. It's interesting though, right? Like I said, this amount of sin, this amount of brokenness, like it can feel weighty. And when brokenness hits us, when brokenness affects us, Negatively, another word that we can use for that is trauma, right? Like when something broken hits or hurts you, we suffer trauma. And so when we encounter trauma, when, when we interact with trauma, we actually create these defenses to it. Our brains do it on their own. I think it's one of the ways that we were created by God as a way of defending ourselves from the brokenness, from the harm of the world. Right? It's actually probably helpful that we have these defenses, right? Because if we don't have defenses against brokenness or trauma, we would be raw little balls of emotion and we wouldn't be able to function. And sometimes these trauma responses are really, really helpful, but what it can lead us to do is this, it can lead us to really easily misunderstand sin. Sin is really easily misunderstood. And again, right, it makes sense why it is. There's so much brokenness of the world, let alone our own brokenness, we have to come up with ways to cope. And that's true of all of us. Like all of us actually carry trauma. Uh, A few months ago, I was arguing with my counselor about this uh, because he used the phrase trauma to describe something in my upbringing. I was like, well, like, I'm not a soldier. Like, I have have friends who went to Iraq and Afghanistan. Like, I'm not that. I have friends who grew up with parents who beat them. Like, I'm not that. I was like, I lived a pretty good middle-class suburban life in Paulsbo, Washington. Like, I don't, I don't, trauma feels extreme. And I, I remember he's like, why are you so special, John? I was like, what? He goes, why do you think you're so special? (laughs) I was like, now I feel trauma. Um, (laughs) But it was interesting. He was talking. He's like, you and I have talked about that there are situations that I encounter where my body has a reaction to it that I can't control. That's a trauma response. Like, all of us probably have different trauma responses in us if we actually would listen well to our bodies. Some one of the things I've done over the last few months in these, in these counseling points is that I've listened well as the situation comes. I'm like, oh, I can feel that here. Oh, that's interest. Oh, that's a response. And it's really interesting that all of us do this. And it makes sense because we're all coping with the brokenness of the world. Sometimes when we cope with the brokenness of the world, when we cope with this trauma of sin, some really, really cool things happen. Uh, Some of the best theological and pastoral writing has come out of individuals grappling with sin and brokenness. C.S. Lewis wrote A Grief Observed, which is just a phenomenal, heartfelt uh, package of writing about processing through grief. There are amazing nonprofits that have brought so much light into the world that were started because of a founder's way of coping with the trauma of brokenness in the world. Uh, sometimes the way that we cope with brokenness is silly. Um, how many of you guys like sports? I like sports. This is I feel like I just asked the sports ball question, but I actually follow sports. Like um, how many of you guys have ever done something superstitious around sports? Okay, there's more of you. You're just scared to put your hands up, it's fine. <laughs> I wore the same sweatshirt for both wild card games when the Mariners played the Blue Jays and it worked. We were losing 8-1 in game two, and I look at my son, Griffey, you can tell I'm a baseball fan, and I was like, Griffey, you're not wearing the shirt you wore yesterday, go get it. My six-year-old, he's like, Dad, that's not going to do anything. I was like, yes, it is, go put your shirt on. (laughs) And we came back and won, I don't know. Um, (laughs) I wore that same sweatshirt for game one of the Houston series, that didn't go as well, so I washed it. Uh, Some of you are in church today, like no shame. Some of you are here today because you're like, I think I get good karma when I go to church and the Seahawks are gonna win. <laughs> That's fine, I'm glad you're here. Uh, it's fine. Uh, and we do this, right? We, we find ways to control things that seem trivial, like sports, and again, like I love sports. I spent seven hours at T-Mobile Park yesterday. Like I love sports, but sports are trivial compared to like real life and death things. But we do this. Uh, Disney fans, we're just trying to hit all the boxes here. Disney people, okay. I like Frozen 2, I think it's better than Frozen 1. Um, I'll fight you about that afterwards. But there's a moment in Frozen 2 where they've been evacuated from Arendelle and Olaf is sitting on the ground and there's these kids around him like putting ice crystals in his face. I forget who it is either on or else. They're like, what is going on Olaf? And he says this, we're calling this controlling what you can when things feel out of control. I love that. Like we do that, right? So sometimes we cope in silly ways, but other times we see this amount of brokenness and the weight of sin around the world and we cope in ways that aren't helpful and sometimes are actually harmful. Sometimes we cope with sin by creating these arguments or these explanations or these understandings of sin that are just plain wrong. And the really fascinating thing is this, is that these misunderstandings, we're gonna talk about two of them, but these misunderstandings that we have, they're actually voiced both inside and outside the church. And so the first misunderstanding that's voiced this way is this. It's what I would say is sin is too big for Jesus. Sin is too big for Jesus. Now, outside the church, you're not going to hear that quote. You're You're just not going to. But outside the church, it might sound something like this. If there is a God, he must hate me because I'm such a screw up. I'm beyond hope. I'm always going to be this messed up. We hear that a lot. You interact with people long enough, you're gonna hear people say that. And they don't know it probably, but what they're saying is that sin is too big, this brokenness is too big, there's nothing that can be done about it. It's interesting, we say the same thing inside the church, it just sounds a lot more judgy. Uh, There's a parable or a story that Jesus told uh, called the prodigal son, And in it, there's a a son who takes his inheritance early, which is a slap in the face, and runs away and squanders his inheritance. He's got an older brother who's been faithful and done all the right things. The younger son comes home, and in disgrace, he thinks, but the father runs out and puts a robe on him and lavishes him and throws an amazing party for him, and the older brother doesn't show up to the party. He's so mad. He's like, where's my party for doing the right thing all these years? I saw someone post this the other day where it says this, that in the church one of the hardest things is that when we're done being the prodigal son to not become the older brother. Because I think a lot of us have had a prodigal son moment. A lot of us have had a moment where we come and we say yes to Jesus and we accept grace and forgiveness and understanding for our sins and our brokenness and our mistakes. And then a few months later, we look at someone who's probably not in the same place that we are in our journey with Jesus and we go, how dare they get that grace and forgiveness? A lot of times in the church, you'll hear the language like this you're wasting what Jesus did on the cross. I've even heard people say this, Jesus's blood wasn't spilled for that. And like, I don't know what Bible you're reading. Like it's very clear that Jesus's blood was spilled for every brokenness, every mistake that we've ever made. The second big misunderstanding that we have around sin though is this, sin isn't a big deal. Sin isn't a big deal. And again, we, we have to be kind to ourselves, when we look at these statements or when we say these statements, we have to be kind to others when we hear these statements because we understand that it's, it's, it's a response to a huge amount of brokenness hitting us and we're doing the best we can, right? Like there's grace and there's forgiveness here. But outside of the church, right, sin isn't a big deal. It sounds a lot like this. No one can tell me what's right or wrong. It's all subjective. Or this is what I think is right and that's all that matters. Sometimes you'll hear, I'm speaking my truth. And you can't tell me what that is or isn't. And I, and I want to pause here because this is really important. Our, over the last 10 to 15 years, I think there's been a positive movement in culture and inside the church in this country to have more people share their truth or their perspective. And it's been positive because we've marginalized certain types of voices for way too long. And as Jesus followers who look at Jesus of Nazareth in the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament, We can come to no other conclusion, but that God and Jesus both want to elevate voices of those who have been marginalized. And that that is where Jesus found himself. And that's where God told his people to prioritize almost above all else. He's like, be faithful to me and lift up those who have been pushed down by society. But it's so important that we acknowledge this, that truth is not up for grabs that we can have different perspectives and we should hear and share and listen and learn from different perspectives, but there is a certain moral right and wrong. Like, do I think that there is such a thing as a moral gray area? Yes, absolutely. Do I think that there are probably fewer moral gray areas than we would hear in culture in the moment? Yes. Like, there is an absolute right and an absolute wrong. I think a lot of times we try to do these things where we put into a gray area because we can't handle and process the weight of the brokenness and what that means. And again, that's understandable. We need to be kind to ourselves in that, but sin is a big deal. In the church, it sounds like this though, right? Jesus died for all of my sins, so I'm okay to keep doing what I've been doing. My, uh, my second summer in full-time ministry, I was a youth pastor and... I felt like I got hit over the head. I was used to to hanging out with teenagers and dealing with their parents and and helping teenagers process life things. And then I got thrown into what felt like very big adult, real pastor things, and I wasn't ready. Um, There were three divorces in my life that summer. One of my best friends had his wife leave him because he was depressed. Another family in our church got divorced. And then there was another family that was getting divorced after after both getting remarried to each other um, just two years prior. And uh, for whatever reason, I was the right person to talk to the, to the husband in that relationship because he had pushed everyone else aside. And I remember sitting down and talking with him and he just wanted to leave, he wanted out. He wanted to leave his current wife, he wanted to leave his stepkids for no other reason other than he was bored and wanted something different. I remember I, I, I asked him, I said, hey, I was there, you got married, you made a promise in front of your kids your stepkids and God. You have told me that you want your kids to grow up believing in God and believing in this faith and believing in in our words being true. Like, how are you reconciling walking out on this promise lesson two years later in front of your kids? He said this, he said, I think God wants me to do this. He goes, I think the Bible justifies what I'm doing. It doesn't, like spoiler, it, it didn't. But I remember, I will never forget what he said next because it's what told me that the conversation was beyond hope. He said, but even if I'm wrong about what the Bible says, Jesus is gonna forgive me anyways. I don't know what to do with that. It's four years ago. I still don't know what to do with that. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, right? This idea that I can do whatever the heck I want because Jesus is just gonna forgive it all. This is what it looks like inside the church when we say sin isn't a big deal. Sin and brokenness are weighty. There's no doubt about it. And, and that's hard for us to deal with and hard for us to process at times, but we can't just say that sin isn't a big deal. So what's next? How do we live? We have a short time in the, in the grand scheme of things to live and be on this earth. And it feels so vital and so important. We get to hold together these things of like from dust to dust that we see in Genesis as well as like that we were fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. Psalms 8 says this, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You, God, made them rulers over the works of your hands. We've been made rulers over the works of God's hands because we are in his image, we are image bearers who have an incredible purpose here on earth. But James later in the New Testament says this in chapter one, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. There's a cost to sin to us. I think a lot of times it's really, I grew up in the church and so I'm pretty familiar with sin. I'm pretty familiar with rationalizing my way around sin because um, I think that's just what we do. And so it's been, I've been in moments, and you probably have two where it's really easy to convince yourself, like, well, this isn't a big sin. It's a little sin. It's not really affecting someone else. It maybe affects me. I don't know if it does. Like, it's probably a harmless sin. There's no such thing. Cornelius Plantinga says this, sin hurts other people and grieves God, but it also corrodes us. Sin is a form of self-abuse. Why is cheap grace so harmful? Why is this idea that, well, it doesn't matter what I do. God's gonna forgive me no matter what. Why is that so harmful? Because it's killing us. It is absolutely killing us. I know sometimes it's really hard to care about yourself compared to other people, but I'm asking you as an image bearer of God like to care about yourself. Why does God want us to stray away from sin? It's not just because it upsets him and it's not because we need to have right behavior, but God says it's better for you when you walk away from sin. He says this, when you continue in sin, when you persist in brokenness, it's killing you. And that, God's so sad about that, guys. Like it just tears him up, I think. So he looks at these people who are made in his image, who he has given the world to, and says, why are you hurting yourself this way? I have so much better things for you. So what do we do next? Like I said, a couple of weeks ago, I think it's this, we take our shame and our brokenness to God. And we give that shame and we give that brokenness to God and we let him do what he does best. It's the only thing we can do. There's a line in the Kingdom Catechism book that kind of goes between this week and next week that I really love. And it says this, and there right in the mix and mess of sin and trauma and tyrants and pain, enter Jesus gonna have Sebastian come up as we, as we close out our time together. But that's what we celebrate every single week when we take communion, right? We remember this. We remember that in the midst of the sin and pain and brokenness that Jesus is coming in. We're gonna hear a lot about Jesus next week. I'm so excited for that. Right, this idea that bad choices bring bad results is true, but it doesn't account for Jesus. Jesus comes in and blows up that equation of bad choices equaling bad results, and he says no. And when we bring our shame and our guilt and our brokenness to God, Jesus is with there, right there with us. He is with us. And he is saying, yes, this is what they've done, and yes, it is messy, and yes, it is ugly, but they are made in our image, and I died for that. That's what we recognize every single week when we do communion. When we look at scripture, when we look at sin and brokenness, we have to look at the the whole totality of it. Sometimes I get caught daydreaming about Genesis 1 and 2. My daydreaming sounds a lot like this. Man, I wish I didn't have this recurring issue in my life. Man, I wish, man, cancer sucks. I wish I lived in a world where I wasn't cancer. Now, why do things have to be so broken? And, and what I'm saying in these moments is like, I want to go back to Eden. But if you read the end of chapter three in Genesis, you know this, that it's closed. But the cool thing about scripture, right? We start in Genesis but we end in Revelation. And through Jesus, we're going to talk about next week, we see in Revelation at the end, when all things are made new, there's no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more brokenness, that the gates are always open. The gates are That's what we remember as we take communion. Communion, your anger is available to every single person who's ever said yes to Jesus. Even if you said yes to Jesus for the first time this morning. Even if this morning was the first time you ever said something along the lines of, I'm tired of doing this on my own. I know that I'm broken. Jesus, I need you because of my brokenness. God, will you forgive me through the work that Jesus did?